0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the
1: place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. You, Mark, for the first time, are going to be able to see every time you make a purchase, what the cost to the federal government is. And that is one of the things that scares D.C. the most. Welcome to the Lions
0: of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, my Liberty Libras, to another edition of Lions of Liberty, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty And boy, what a crazy election, huh? Man, I can't believe how that turned out. Did you guys buy that? Did you guys buy that at all? Yeah, I don't know what happened. I recorded this episode before election day. So there you go. Because who knows? I'm probably going to be out drowning myself in whiskey uh, because I don't see a good outcome coming from this election. So uh, who knows what kind of condition I'm actually in right now while you're listening to this. But what you're listening to is, in fact, episode 261 of this program. And that still means no matter how drunk in a gutter I may be right now. No, I'm not. I'm probably out being productive in the world. But rest assured, you can find your show notes for today, featuring links to everything I discuss with my guest today, over at lionsofliberty.com slash 261. And I know many of you out there are facing major health care decisions, especially right now with the open enrollment period for 2017 having just begun. I want to encourage you to check out today's sponsors, Health Excellence Select. They have set up the ultimate free market, affordable alternative to Obamacare that you absolutely must check out. Learn more at lionsofliberty.com health. My guest today is the president of Americans for Fair Taxation, an organization which supports the implementation of a so-called fair tax, the concept of which we will be discussing today. I am pleased to welcome Mr. Stephen Hayes. Steve, are you ready to roar?
1: Absolutely, Mark. Thank you.
0: All right. Now, Stephen, like I mentioned, we are going to break down the concept of the fair tax today in just a bit. But first, I want to get to learn a little bit more about you. So why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? How did you first become interested sort of in, in politics
1: overall? Well... In politics overall, I grew up in it. My I came from Arkansas, and Arkansas, my dad was a county sheriff, and county sheriffs are were a big thing back then in terms of the politics, and so I was involved in helping him in political campaigns from an early age, so I became very interested, and then went on and became an attorney, did tax law, did tax shelter work, did all those things that Uh, The IRS pretty much stopped, you know, in terms of how to do it. And then went along, kept, was interested in politics from the point of view of following it, got involved in trying to lobby with the Senate Finance Committee members against some changes they made in 86, which I thought were silly. And it didn't work. And so, I was moving into other areas, and that's why people introduced me as a recovering tax attorney, because I quit really specializing in that in the 80s. And I got involved in 1990 with a sort of a, you know, what do you think about this? Because i had been looking at alternatives, and I loved the idea of a retail sales tax. And so we said, you know, as a lark almost, why don't we do it? Sent out a press release to a bunch of radio shows, and I must have had literally, Mark, and this was back in 1990, but 50 requests for interview. Wow. And so it went from there, and we just built it primarily on the backs of, honestly, of radio, you know, call-in shows, which were very, very plentiful back then. They weren't all syndicated like they are now. And And here you
0: are today, a quarter of a century later on a podcast, still trying to do the same thing.
1: (laughs) We're still working to educate people, and but fortunately from that humble beginning uh, the whole movement's grown to where we have a, a database who regularly we communicate with of almost 400,000 and we've got in the house and senate 84 co-sponsors i believe it'll be effective there were 82 and two more on my last trip agreed to become co-sponsors so so we are the we have a lot of people in support of the bill and now we just have to See who's going to become the next president, Mark, and then try to find a way to work with them and, and the House and Senate and see if we can't actually get real tax reform done, because that is on the table and it's being talked about by both sides. Of course, what people consider tax reform in D.C. is, you know, sort of. Uh, it's a different than what people who understand what tax reform is usually think because they want to reform it if they can and still keep all their benefits from you know lobbyists coming to them in special interest. so it's it's a chore, but we think there's a, a good chance we're going to see serious movement next year. We just hope it's we can make it the right movement.
0: Now, you mentioned lobbying against some some changes to the tax code or the tax law in 1986. Can you just describe briefly what, what some of those changes were? Why were you on Capitol Hill lobbying against them?
1: Well, I had a lot of clients who were professionals, you know, not only attorneys, but this was back when a lot of MDs were incorporating their practice in setting up pension plans. And so we were setting up some very, very good pension plans for the professionals, MDs and attorneys and architects and others. And coincidentally, by setting these up, we were benefiting their employees. They were very attractive to the employees as well. There were some parts of the 86 Act which were, I don't know what they were thinking particularly, but which limited the amount that could be put aside by a professional and It made them much less attractive, which meant that less money got in for the professional, which also meant that a lot of employees who had rich retirement plan options, which they were being forced to, no longer had the same retirement plans. So I just thought it was stupid the way they were doing it, and there were some things they could have done differently. And I'll be honest with you, the Republican majority, I met with every single one of them, and they all agreed I was right, and so I left feeling pretty good. And the next week, they all voted unanimously for the way the bill was. Interesting
0: before. how that works, huh? They agree with you to your face, and then as soon as you leave, they vote—they vote the other way.
1: That's exactly what happened. And so I said, "No, this is this is pretty rough." And I understand the politics; they were afraid to change anything because they were afraid they'd lose their coalition. But even so, it was—it was my change was so minor compared to the whole thing. It. I think it was really short-sighted. And I think the facts have proven me right. I think, you know, a lot of employees, humility, probably lost millions of dollars in retirement benefits, which is unfortunate. Do you think that has that has led
0: somewhat to the, the downfall of the pension plan? I mean, pensions used to be much more commonplace. And now it's pretty rare to find a company that's offering a pension.
1: Well, it's, yes, it's very rare. But uh, most of them, the top, you know, two, three, four hundred companies obviously still have pension benefits and most prevalent now you'll find it with unions and governments and you won't find it very often like a lot of companies will have a 401k which is a pension and they'll match up to a certain amount that you contribute but it's uh, it's very much rare now and and I don't know that this was the sole cause but I do know it was a huge cause to a lot of that you know dropping out of favor.
0: Alright, so so what are the biggest issues that you have with the current tax system, with the income tax, uh the way the IRS is out there enforcing it? What are the issues that you have to the extent that you, you're offering an entirely uh new way to look at, at the way that money is collected by the government? Well, we're not I mean, if
1: I can just stop you for a second. What sure. we're Absolutely. what we are not offering is a new way. What okay. we are talking about is reversing 100 years, and that's really how long we've had an income tax of misguided policy that worked for a while in terms of raising money and going back to a system which was used and has been used for centuries and centuries, which is an excise tax, which is all a retail sales tax is. It's something the states have used well before we had an income tax and we're talking about reinstituting that approach at the federal level. And this is what we're saying a 23% retail sales tax on all new, underlying new goods and services. In replacing all the corporate and personal income tax, the gift tax, the estate tax, and many other related taxes that fall into that mesh, but those are the main ones. And what's wrong with the present system is that primarily it's failing. You've got a system right now, Mark, where evasion, which means people who should be paying a certain amount of money are paying less than that amount of money. Generally, it's not a drug dealer, it's somebody like you see at the, your local Denny's or wherever for breakfast who's sitting around and who's decided they're going to either A, put that money in their pocket, and not report it, or B, they're going to have extra deductions over and above what they should. And and back when we were an employer-employee economy, which is how I grew up, you know, back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, it worked pretty well because of withholding. Withholding meant that employees pretty much had to pay their taxes ensure some people underwithheld and all that but it was relatively minor well Mark we're into an economy right now and a workforce according to the Department of Labor which is gonna have 40 percent of the workforce in the next few years they, they say by 2020 that will be non-traditional workers meaning somebody that has several jobs or independent contractors and of course The definition of an independent contractor is you perform duties for several different companies. So a lot of people will begin to become independent contractors with Obamacare. You know, one of the government's unintended consequences is that suddenly you do not have to work for an employer to be able to get the same insurance. And since most employers are making you pay a lot of the cost anyway, a lot of independent contractors, a lot of people that are my daughter's age have gone out on their own because they can provide the health benefits that they feel they want for their family, and yet they can also do it much more tax advantage because suddenly their automobile is deductible. Suddenly their internet connection is deductible. All these things that they couldn't do as employees. So you're seeing a lot of people take legitimate deductions. There's nothing wrong with those as long as they're business related. However, you're also seeing a growing number of people who are either not reporting income or exaggerating or making up, frankly, deductions. And that's why you have $600 billion in estimate of taxes not being paid under the income tax and payroll tax. And I just ask groups when I talk, Mark, and I'll ask you, you, know, are you if you've seen or been offered an opportunity to get, usually it's a good, some kind of a service, at a lower price for cash in the last, say, three or four months, six months.
0: Do it in a heartbeat.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, you probably have. And when I ask that question in, in groups that I speak to, almost all the hands go up. And I say, well, you think that's because they're trying to save on accounting? Everybody laughs at me. No, they're not going to report it. And so you've got this growing acceptance of people who, just like you said, you know, who see nothing wrong with somebody else taking it. Now, in all seriousness, under the income tax payroll tax, you don't have any violation by paying somebody cash. It's not up to you to enforce it. It's up to them to report it. Whereas if you have a sales tax, if you offer a taxable service at the retail level and don't charge sales tax, then both you and the merchant the provider of the service know it's a violation so it takes two to cheat under the retail sales tax only one under the income tax and so what's happening is it's becoming really a sieve and we're leaking money i mean when paul ryan became chairman of the ways and means committee before he was moved up to speaker excuse me i met with him and i talked to him about this proposal and he said that he was he was aware there was a grow innovation problem he didn't you know know that he agreed totally with my number he thought maybe the irs at 450 was closer but look 450 or 600 billion still huge and we talked about it and he said well i plan to solve that problem by making the tax system much simpler and lowering the rate and i said well mr chairman it's, and it and by the way, he's he's a charming man. I, I really think he's a nice guy. He comes across as well, a nice guy. You can't get uh, into he, a
0: position like that without without being able to charm some people. That's for sure.
1: No, he he's very good at it. And but he said, look, he said, my plan will do this. And I said, he said, don't you think that will help? And I said, well, it may help a little bit, but I think it's too late. And he says, what do you mean? And I said, generally speaking, people are pretty clever about the way they do this. Not always, but pretty clever. And I knew of a person who was decided that he needed about twenty grand a year for his vacations and different things that he did, and so he worked out a way to take partly cash and partly in exaggerated deductions and he made about a hundred a year in real money. He reported eighty. And the other twenty just went in his pocket. And I said, So this guy, when you lower his rate, let's say from forty to twenty, he's gonna be really happy because of the eighty grand, his you know his rates are lower but he's not only evading the income tax, he's evading the payroll tax and he's self-employed. So that's 15.3 payroll and Medicare. And plus, and this was in California, he's evading the state income tax, which effectively was around seven. So he's over 40% under your reduced rate. Now he's already decided it's okay to do this, to cheat, because he knows he is. He's already decided that, so why is he gonna take that 20 grand and pay eight to nine thousand to the government.
0: So, is that your biggest issue with the current taxation system? Is
1: that it's too easy for people to evade? And, and for the not at all. Pro- no, not because- at all. No, not at all. I think econo- I mean, that's just you're asking me what's wrong with it. That's okay. what's ultimately wrong with the system itself.
0: From the perspective of if if we do believe this this certain taxation level should exist, it, it's not achieving the the result in the way that it's advertised.
1: It's no, and it, what it's doing is putting the pressure on people who choose to pay. You know, obey the law, and on people who have no choice, who are on some type of you know employer-employee relationship, which incidentally, the largest constituency of the Democrat Party is our employer-employees, union members, and government workers. So, so there's a
0: deep imbalance different. between who is sort of forced into the system to pay versus who is able to sort of that's easily right. evade it in some ways.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what's going to lead to the downfall of the system, and I and maybe even worse to the credibility of people and believing in law and order. But I think, no, the economic reasons are are enormous. You've You've got a tax system which penalizes our exports and rewards imports because unlike all the other trading partners we have, we do not do what they do. When they send something over here, they rebate at the border, adjust at the border all of the taxes that had been paid under their consumption tax. They have a VAT over there. And they send it over here without that. When it gets here, we don't tax it. We let companies get it and sell it and we tax them on their profit, but it may be three or 4%, whereas they rebate it 20%. When our products go over there, we do not give anything back. Our products go over there at 100%, and when they get there, they get 20% added on. So we're at a big disadvantage from an import-export point of view we're at a big disadvantage under this system because we have a system which basically has become very complex for small businesses generate between 60 and 70, some people say 80% of the new jobs depending on the size of the business, but yet many of them may have to spend more money in trying to comply than they actually do in taxes because it's so complex. So what we're talking about is a system that is totally bad, and I haven't even gotten to civil liberties. I mean, if you think about it, under the present system, you're forced to file a report of pretty much where you spent your income if you're trying to do deductions. You have to show what you spent on the mortgage. Now, is all this information available to them probably through the NSA or others? Yes, of course. But this is where you're supposed to be filing all these papers. Uh, Art Laffer, the famous Laffer Curve, did a study with a friend of mine, John Childs, and they came up with a a number of $450 billion that companies and individuals spend trying to comply with the Internal Revenue Code. And so what you're looking at is costs being higher than they have to be of all of our products. Spending all, all this that money j-
0: just to pay taxes. That's just to pay the, the money. Well, oh, just That's crazy. figure out how to pay it. Right.
1: Not to pay it, no, no, no. Not to pay. We're two point some odd trillion to pay. Right, right. But of the amount collected, we spend about twenty five, twenty to twenty five percent trying to figure out how to pay it, and how to comply. You've got a system with a social security. You, you, you know, we're in our system. Social security is funded through a system where payroll deductions. The problem is that more and more of the Workers are supporting older guys like me who are retired. See, I'm I'm sixty-eight. I'm still working full time, but I'm technically retired. Well, I'm still paying into social security. I guess I'm not a good example, Mark. But someone else, I knew other people who are, quote, retired, who really are retired. And there's now we're now down to like two point three or four to one when we started off with Social Security, it was like thirty to one. So the payroll tax system. People vary on their arguments of how long it'll be solvent. Some say another 20 years, some say 30 years, but they all know it's heading for the cliff. And the only way to make it solvent is to continually increase retirement ages along with bringing in more money from workers. Who's going to pay that? Mostly W-2 workers, because if they increase the tax on a guy who's not paying, is he going to suddenly start paying? Obviously not. Our system bases social security retirement the funding on retail sales across the country so everybody including people coming into the country including people who are here illegally everybody will be paying that tax when they make purchases of retail goods and services the other thing that really stands out on this i think besides simplicity no forms to file much better economic trading situation more capital coming into the country from around the world because we are now suddenly a place where you want to invest. The other thing that really stands out about this is that we will then be having a country where you get to keep your paycheck, you get to decide how much tax you're going to pay, Mark, based on what you spent. And people say, oh, you're going to make my haircut go from I'm going to use this example $10 to $12 to $13 because of the sales tax. Right. And I say, you know, that's true, but what does it cost you to pay the $10 today? You've got to earn how much? A dollar 25, a dollar 30, depending on your tax bracket, but when you put in the the payroll tax, it's probably 25 to 40 cents. So you've got to earn a dollar 40 to net a dollar. Right. You know, so 14 so you're not talking suddenly adding new taxes and plus the various studies that we've had done say that if you take away all those costs to preparation mark and if you take out all that money that's added into the prices just to keep up with all this and to pay their taxes their seven and a half percent payroll Medicare tax on all their employees a percentage of profit that gets built in that's going to be taxed we you know what the tax would be on their profit that the retail prices, that $10 haircut, isn't gonna drop, you know, $3, but it's probably gonna drop a dollar. So you're gonna have a haircut that can be done at $9, and the barber makes the same amount of money he used to make at 10 plus, instead of having to pay a corporate tax rate, you know, or a business tax, all he does is pay a sales tax. You get X dollars in, You collect the tax and you send it to the government. There's no, well, was this a business lunch? No, all that's gone. It's simple. And plus, you've reduced the amount of tax collection points probably to about 10 to 15% of what they are today. So you've just made an incredibly different system, a modern system, but one that says you, Mark, for the first time, are going to be able to see every time you make a purchase what the cost to the federal government is. And that is one of the things that scares DC the most because everybody's a consumer and everybody is going to see that they've got a 23% tax and say, why is it so high? Well, it's so high because this is what it takes to fund the federal government. Now, truthfully, you're going to see a lot of people kick back on that. And that's what we've seen. You know, We've seen Ted Cruz come out with a a plan that would put part of that into a vat, which hides it. But a sales tax is very straightforward. Tax on consumption at the point of consumption. All taxes are on consumption because they take away your ability to consume. But a tax at the point of consumption, like a retail sales tax, will grow the economy faster, will increase investment in the the country you won't have to worry about repatriation because they'll have a great incentive to have the money over here because it won't be taxed at the corporate level. The only taxes will be at the retail level. And the compliance on that in California is my example. I talked to George Runner. He's one of the directors of the Board of Equalization. I asked George, that's their sales tax organization. They collected fifty billion billion three three years ago. I said, what was the evasion rate? And he's, Quickly said, oh, about 5%. I said, what? He said, yeah, about 5%. I said, well, what's that based on? He says, I'll send you a copy of the study. He sent me a study where they had analyzed it. And part of the reason is not because there's such great tax collectors, but over 90% of the sales taxes in this country are paid by less than 10% of the merchants.
0: Steve, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the details of the fair tax in just a minute. But first, I need to take some time out to give a word to our sponsors. You know, I'm a freelancer and I purchased my own health insurance and I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My premiums and deductibles were skyrocketing. And as someone who keeps myself pretty healthy, I knew that I was getting a raw deal for a product I simply didn't want. This caused me to seek an alternative and I found an amazing alternative in the form of health sharing, a killer concept where healthy individuals agree to share their medical costs. That's right. It's a voluntary free market system for paying for your health care that also, thanks to an exemption, covers the Obamacare mandate. Our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch by creating a full service package to handle all of your health care needs. Trust me, I'm not just a proponent of health sharing. I'm also a client. This has been one of the greatest things I've ever done to leave the Obamacare system in favor of what our friends at Health Excellence Select are doing. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com health. And don't hesitate to give my man Jeff Cantor a call at 440-283-684. Four nine. Be sure to mention Lions of Liberty, Stephen. Let's let's dig a little bit more into the nitty gritty, the, the fine details of of this fair tax plan. And and first of all, I just want to make clear because I I know one of the biggest worries people have um, when, when talking about this plan, especially among the libertarian community who are, who are very skeptical of of any kind of new plan that that is proposed when it comes to taxation, is that that this would just end up being lumped up on top of a lot of the current taxes we have. But so why don't you just describe what you're planning to do away with when you make this proposal? Is this going to do away with most of the other taxes that we currently have at the federal level, if not all of them?
1: Yeah, you're still going to have the excise taxes. You're still going to have an excise tax on gasoline. You're still going to have excise taxes on other things that are not related to the income payroll tax code. But you get rid of the corporate and personal income tax, estate and gift tax and Social Security. And and the way we, we do this also to counter another argument, which is, oh, that's really unfair to lower income people. Well, states charge 10% in some cases, like California. They don't seem to think it's unfair. But what we've done is we've tried to make it so that any purchase up to the poverty level for your family, family size, is exempt from the tax. And we do that not by giving you a a credit or a check at, you know 14 months later when you file for your return but we do that monthly with what's called a prebate where we put into your account 1/12th of your you know the amount for your family size for example a family of four it's about 34 grand so the tax on and I'm, I'm going to round numbers off 2600 a month is put in your check or credited to your credit card or whatever you set up every month
0: so every month, every American citizen would essentially get a, a, a sum of money
1: that's meant to cover
0: any expenditures up to that poverty line. Is that the idea? Yes,
1: that's, the, that's exactly right. So you choose, and this is only a new purchase. So you go out and you spend the money, and that first level of spending you do is effectively tax-free. So if you're making $34,000 and spending 34000 if you're you know, a family of four, you're paying zero tax. And I'm talking payroll tax and income tax. Right now, you're paying about 2200 in payroll tax.
0: And right now, pretty much nobody can avoid that payroll tax. That's not well, something you can you can write off or anything like that.
1: If you're an employee, you're stuck. If you're an if you're an independent contractor, the payroll tax is only on your net income. So that's where it comes into if you don't report income or if you exaggerate deductions so that when you have your net, that's what you pay payroll tax on. So remember, a lot of people and part of that six hundred billion is not just income tax; it's also payroll tax being debated.
0: Now, another criticism that I, I sometimes hear about the fair tax is that they call it, they say it's a regressive tax, and that the the poor are going to bear the brunt of this. But uh, on your website, it, it really states the opposite: that this is actually a progressive tax. So, can you explain the difference between a progressive and a re- regressive tax, and why why you see the fair tax as being actually being progressive?
1: Sure, the fair tax by Doing the prebate and by untaxing a lot of people at the lower income range because of the prebate, what you've just done is you've just allowed the people to have a choice of how they spend their money. Because right now, they don't. In other words, that lower income person who's sitting there, he is going to have the responsibility of paying, if he's working, the payroll tax from dollar one that's the most absolutely unfair tax of all if you want to take this idea of being regressive or progressive because it starts at dollar one doesn't matter if you have twenty children or zero children everybody pays the same rate and it stops a little over a hundred thousand so the people who are making less are gonna pay more so that's number one number two What's happening is that by giving people the right to choose how they spend their money, yes, almost all of them are not going to buy used food. But I have a daughter. I have a grandchild. Right now, she thinks it's silly to buy new toys. They buy used toys for him. Clean them up, and they're fine. Okay? That's not taxable under the fair tax. So a lot of lower-income people, those are the people that go to the thrift shops, and those are the people that shop other places, those are not taxable. You're going to have people with an absolute opportunity to choose how much tax they pay in many cases, and you're going to have people who are going to have that base, which they supposedly have under the income tax, but really doesn't work that well for most people with the standard deduction. You're going to have a simple, clean way for lower-income people to work, and the best thing, I think, that we really have is we're going to create more growth in the economy through this system, which is going to lead to more stable jobs and more people working.
0: When you say this tax would only apply to new items, would that also include, like, say, a house or, or an automobile? I mean, if I, if I buy a house that was built 10 years ago by the previous owner, is that considered an old item? Would that include no
1: taxes? That would be no taxes. It's a, new, it's a used house.
0: Wow. And same same would apply to a car then, too. So that would actually really incentivize people to buy used vehicles probably more often than a, than a new car.
1: You would find a lot of people doing that. But also, and this is the other part of it, is you're going to find that the differential between used cars and new cars goes down because you know the people are going to start factoring in. Well, Mark, you can buy my car without tax, so you can pay 10% more and still be ahead. You see what I'm saying? All right. You're gonna you're gonna see more of an equalization. So in the long run, you're still gonna have people that want that new house and they're gonna pay for it and they're going to be able to get what they want. They're gonna pay it over thirty years. And again, Mark, the key thing, and this is what the real con, if you want to call it, has been, because of the way they've disguised the cost of government in all these different pockets, you know, that sort of like the death by a thousand cuts. Right. If you're going to get a hundred thousand dollar house, and if you're going to pay for oh, that, boy,
0: please point me to where to where that is because they sure aren't available out here in L.A. <laughs> no, they're not. But I'm just using know, that as an example. An example, right?
1: You're going to have to make a hundred and forty thousand to do it, right? Because you're going to, if you're going to actually ever pay the principal off, and then, and that's the other thing. If I can take a minute, I think it's really interesting because when I, I went and did a a tax forum with him. Member of Congress, who's a friend of mine, but he he's a real he has always his tongue in his cheek, you know John Micah down in Florida, and he had on the panel without telling me a head of the Florida real estate president and the head of the Florida charitable association, and both of them were very very much interested in protecting their deduction, you know mortgage interest in the charitable. Well, the lady the Real estate, nice lady. She got up and said, "Look, we have studies that show that if you get rid of the mortgage interest deduction, you're going to see a 15 percent reduction in home values, and that's catastrophic because so many people have, you know, much of their net worth in their home." And and she went on and on, and I got up and said, "Well, is you know, I have just a comment. What you're saying is you've increased home prices 15 percent. Now that's across the board. That's." The fifty thousand dollar home as well as the million dollar home, yes, I said, okay, well, only thirty to thirty five percent of the people who file tax returns itemize, so for sixty five percent of the people, what you're saying is that those people are going to pay fifteen percent more so that thirty five percent can benefit, and the second part of it is that people making under seventy five thousand a year normally will only save a few hundred dollars by itemizing over what they would have saved by just doing the standard deduction. So you take another group of people and you put them in, and the studies that I've seen and numbers I've seen show you've got to be making well over a hundred before it starts to have any savings, you know, net savings tax wise. But yet that fifteen percent increase means that people have to have a larger down payment plus since all of those lower income people are going to be financing over 30 years if they can get it they're going to pay maybe 45% more for their house because you have to multiply you know with the compounding interest right. so i said that's why it's better not to have the deduction and to let you have all of your money and then you go to the loan application and you show a person has all this money without withholding as opposed to they might be able to get some help back from their taxes because they're prepaying the taxes. And then the, as as the charitable guy, I said, listen, you know, he was talking about how great it was and how important, and I said, well, why is it that over the last 50 years, there's a, a, you know, a curve, and in fact, it was a foundation that you sponsor put it out that showed that giving had been between one, one and a half percent consistently when tax rates were high, when they were low, so it's the growth of the economy because again 65 to 70% of the people in this country don't itemize so their deductions are not shown as you know deductions and those people have to pay in order to send $10 to the church they may have to pay $14 or $13 you know by paying the taxes and netting out they don't itemize so You're really punishing the people who give a lot of small donations in favor of some big people. And honestly, most people who give big donations do it besides tax reasons. Right. <laughs> Steven,
0: one more thing I'm curious about you know, I know what you guys are proposing is to just scrap scrap the corporate tax scrap the income tax and replace it with this 23% con- consumption tax and that is 23% is, is the level I believe you guys are proposing uh-huh. would there be any safeguards in place to ensure that that, that rate isn't over time raised to 40% 50% 60% cuz it's not hard to envision politicians coming out there and saying look you know we're just not getting enough revenue from this tax so we're going to you know we like the concept but we're going to have to raise this rate up. So is is there any safeguard that would be in place with the legislation you guys are proposing in relation to this to prevent that rate from just going up and up and up over time? Well, the
1: the one thing that you have to look at is it's much more difficult to raise the sales tax than it is an income tax. Like Hillary Clinton in her debate Monday night says, we're going to tax the rich. I don't know who the rich is, but probably Rich means everybody making more than fifty or 60000 a year, but whatever it is, we're going to tax them, and so we're going to put a little increment on. That is only going to be seen and really paid attention to by a few people. They're going to say, hey, I got $10 a week less in my paycheck or whatever. But if you were to come out and say that that 23% rate that you've been paying on all of your purchases, they want to make it 25%, everybody's going to know it. And everybody is gonna have the opportunity objecting. And if that happens then Because it, it will fut- affect
0: everybody equally as opposed to when they, Absolutely. when they futz with the tax brackets right now, it's affecting some people here, some people there.
1: Yeah, and most people don't even say don't even notice it. It's five or ten dollars a week or two weeks or whatever. But remember, I don't you may not be old enough to remember, but there in the nineties there was a tax that they tried to put on that got labeled the Twinkie tax, the sales tax.
0: I do not recall that. I was All right. my, I was in my teens, so maybe not right. totally in tune then.
1: The Twinkie tax said if you go to a 7-Eleven and you buy a a, a can of peanuts and you're going to consume them, you know, in your car on your way home, it's a snack and it's taxable. However, if your intent is to take it home and use it as food for your dinner, it's not taxable. (laughs) So now, can if you, you put
0: the peanuts in your Chinese chicken salad, then it, it's one thing. If you eat them in your car as a snack, it's another. Yes.
1: Thing. <laughs> now, can you and you can you imagine the conflicts that happened when you had clerks who were trying to adjudicate what was taxable and what wasn't? Wow, that's crazy. And so, after about, I think it was four to six months, he got repealed because of everybody saying this is nuts, which it was.
0: Everybody suddenly eating eating all their food in the car. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, they're taking. They're saying I'm taking it home, you know, and and literally there were fistfights. It was it was. It's I'm making light of it, but I'm just using it as an example of the transparency. They can no longer hide it, and I think that is the critical thing. Everybody sees it now. Is there a chance? Yes, of having an income tax and a sales tax. Ben Cardin, who's a Democrat from Maryland, who's a good friend of Hillary's, says. And he's introduced a bill. I've talked to him about it. It's a tax like ours at the retail level of ten percent. It's also an income tax and it's a value-added tax. Oh,
0: it's it's everything.
1: <laughs> it's everything. Everything that we don't want to see in this country because the income tax, the value-added tax, and the sales tax. You know, the sales tax they may not raise the VAT they'll raise. And the income tax they'll raise, you know, and they'll by lowering the amount of deductions and all that. So you, you've got a, a really bad situation. But people who want to get more money for government, see, this is really a great idea. The sales tax is a great idea for, you know, people making up to say fifty grand. They'll exempt them from income tax, everybody else will pay the sale, you know, the income tax and the sales tax, and those people making up to 50 will never know that they're also paying not only a sales tax, but a higher price for everything they buy because of the bat that's hidden.
0: And that is the, the t- complete opposite of what you guys are trying to do. You want to replace, totally. replace everything with this, with this consumption yeah. tax.
1: We want to make it simple. We want to make it obvious. And we want to encourage growth and also enlist everybody in the fight to get sanity back into the economics of government you know, sanity that you can't have a $20 trillion debt and what it's going to cost to pay that off. Because we can do that with a sales tax. We can say it's going to, if we added 4% to 23, you know, for the next X number of years, we could pay off the debt in 25 years or 30 years or whatever. But everybody's going to see that. You can't do that today, Mark. you can't, I mean, If you ask me what it would take to pay off the debt, I would just spin. I wouldn't have a clue how to answer that. Right. But if you asked me under the sales tax what it would take to do that or what it would take to rebuild all the roads in the country, and wouldn't it be great if we had an opportunity to see a segregated fund of, say, an extra 1% for five years to get all the bridges fixed? I mean, you see what I'm saying? You actually have, can have buy-in from people. You actually have control. You have it's obvious. Now, that's not something that many in D.C. want, Mark. But it's something I think would be good for the country. And I think it would be something that would allow us and for my grandchildren, everybody else. It allows everybody to prosper and do better and not be under the thumb of government.
0: Well, Steve, I certainly appreciate you coming on and, and helping explain this. I've had a lot of fans of the show reach out and say they were interested in, in hearing more about this, so that's that's why I reached out to you to do this program. So I really do appreciate the time. And uh, before I let you go, why don't you just take a minute to tell everyone how they can find your organization, Americans for Fair Taxation, how they can find out more about the Fair Tax, and and how they can reach out to you.
1: Perfect. If you go to fairtax.org, and you can send a request to info if you want us to have a speaker come and. Speak to your group. We have a large number of speakers. We can certainly do that. We have a group of people who we call them the 1040 Club. People who want to get rid of the 1040, the IRS income tax form, contribute 1040 a month. Uh, We're all volunteers. I'm an unpaid volunteer. And we're working to do this because we believe it's in the best interest of the country. And we'd love to have those people join us. If you're not interested in contributing right now, sign up and you'll get our weekly newsletter and you'll keep up to date on what we're doing.
0: Stephen Hayes, I really do appreciate the time and keep up the great work. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me on. All right, folks. I hope you enjoyed my discussion today with Steve Hayes from Americans for Fair Taxation. As I mentioned in the interview, the reason I conducted this interview is a few people from the Lions of Liberty Forum, our private Facebook group, said they wanted to know more about the fair tax. So I went ahead, found Steve, and here we are today. So you too can have some say in the guests that I bring onto the show and the topics I cover if you come and join the Lions Liberty Forum on Facebook. What does it cost you? Nothing. What? What's the catch? Well, the catch is you got to be on Facebook or you got to sign up for Facebook. That's not my catch, though. You got Zuckerberg to blame for that one. But you now Facebook is an easy, easy way to communicate. So many people are on there, so that is our chosen location for now. And you can find that forum just by searching "Lions of Liberty Forum" on your little search bar in Facebook. And we will of course link to that in the show notes as well. They can be found at lionsofliberty.com/261. I know you guys are aching and dying for election coverage. I promise it's gonna come. Eventually. But hey, if you didn't if you didn't hear it already, why don't you go back and check out my interview with Jesse the Body Ventura from this past Monday? One of the favorite interviews I have done to this day, to be perfectly honest. We could have gone on for hours and hours. There's so much interesting stuff that this guy has to say. Some stuff that libertarians are gonna love, some stuff that's gonna get libertarian panties in a bunch. It's just a great conversation, one that I'm really happy to have conducted. So hey, go back and check that out while you're waiting patiently for your election coverage. And then this coming Friday, we, of course, have another edition of John Odermatt's Weekly Look at the Broken Criminal Justice System with Felony Friday. Now, next week, we're going to jam you with election coverage. We're going to have a Gary Johnson wrap-up, Mr. Johnson's Liberty Hood. We're going to take a look back on the Johnson campaign. And then we're going to have a good old-fashioned roundtable focusing on the 2016 election. The implications, uh, as I said, I don't know what happened. The Mark Claire that you're hearing right now is from the past. In the meantime, I've got a homework assignment for you all. That's right, your homework is to share this program. Every single person listening right now, I want you to share this program with at least two people. Yeah, I'm not even gonna say one, two. Share it with one person you know is gonna love it, one person you think's gonna hate it, and see what happens. Because guess what? Now that this election garbage is out of the way, pushed to the side, unless one of my predictions from a roundtable came true and this thing's going to the house, but but we'll see. But you know. A lot of the noise can be put away, and and now that maybe some people have thought about a third option, maybe some people have thought about the dangers of the two-party system and how the Democrats and Republicans aren't really providing a lot of the answers to a lot of the problems that they are seeing out there in the world, maybe they'll be more open to these ideas. Especially now that a lot of this noise, a lot of the fear-mongering about how terrible Hillary is, how terrible Trump is, now that a lot of that will go to the wayside. We can really focus on the concept of ideas, and we're going to ramp this thing up. 2017, we're going to really try to expand this program and do a lot more, and we need your help doing it. We're a grassroots thing. We don't have a name recognition going into this. We started this thing three years ago. No one had heard of me. No one had heard of Lions Liberty. I'm not Tom Woods. I didn't have 10 books before I started my podcast. And that's not a bad thing. That's, it's great that Tom did this work and, and made such a name for himself, but he had a major advantage when he was starting his program. Jason Stapleton had a major advantage in the fact that he was putting tons of money into his show, advantages that I just didn't have to do this. My advantage, though, are my listeners, are you guys. You guys love this program. I know, because we talk about it all the time in the Lions of Liberty Forum. So I encourage you guys to be my voice, to be my marketing team, to go out there and encourage others, encourage your friends, encourage your family, encourage strangers on the street. I don't care who you encourage to listen to this thing because everybody, everybody can be open to the ideas of liberty. All you got to do is crack open that door just a little bit and get those ideas in there and start that conversation. And that's why we're here, folks. That's why I'm going to continue to be here as long as this voice and this microphone and this MacBook keeps working. Guys, it's been a blast. Until next time, live long and live free.